This audio was recorded during a one-day workshop titled Pursuing a Mission Lifestyle Through Gospel Communities. Um, we're going to introduce uh, David now. Uh, David's from uh, Summerlee's uh, church, Christian Reformed Church in um, Hobart, Tasmania. Not Hobart, like we say in Indiana. <laughs> there is a Hobart, Indiana. Yeah, and you pronounce it that way, apparently. <laughs> um, Dave's, uh, you could probably talk a little bit about um, how long you've been there. It's a ch- the church plant, um, a bit about your um, ministry background, and um, maybe your family life as well. So I welcome you to come up. Yep. Thanks. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be uh, with you all here this morning and um, thinking through what's an incredibly important topic of pursuing uh, missional lifestyle through gospel communities. Um, As Brandon said, I'm I'm from uh, from Hobart. Uh, I I lived there till I was about 10 and then my family moved around a fair bit. So we lived in uh, Adelaide for three years and I did high school actually here in Melbourne um, before going back to Hobart for university uh, where I became a Christian. Um, and it's actually it's interesting because I, I got converted into a Presbyterian church. I now work for a Reformed church, so in some ways I'm a Reformed Presbyterian too, which is kind of nice. Not long after I became a Christian, I, um, I was challenged to think about ministry uh, in, a, in a sort of a full-time paid capacity. So um, wound up working for, uh, so I moved to a Reformed church, worked there as a youth pastor for a while, I uh, went over to the United Kingdom, lived there for four years and was involved in student ministry over there. Uh, came back, lived in Sydney, studied um, theology there and then came back to Hobart and, and we've been doing some of these for about six years now. Uh, we're a church plant out of the, the big Christian Reform Church in Kingston, Tasmania. Uh, and really for me, um, I think that the whole gospel community thing uh, started probably while we were in the UK because... The, the trust fund that was uh, sort of sponsoring me to be there, I guess, was overseeing, or, or uh, one of the guys on the board anyway, was a man named uh, Steve Timmis, who co-authored a, a book called Total Church that some of you might have read. I know Brandon sort of had that up on the Facebook page for this event. Um, this is long before we wrote that book, but he was very interested in this whole idea of um, gospel communities and thinking through the potential of the community of God's people uh, when, when that really gets humming. And so when I was in the UK, I was, um, I was exposed a lot to the stuff that they were doing in, in Sheffield. Um, came back when I studied theology uh, in Sydney. Uh, the college where I went was very big on, on, the, uh, on Trinitarian theology, looking at the doctrine of the, the Holy Trinity, about how our one God uh, is at the same time three persons in relationship and how... Uh, the creation and us as people have been modelled on him and in his image are, are built for and, and meant to be in relationship uh, and as we just heard are going to be in relationships and community for all eternity um, and so uh, that, that really blew me away and, and made me think wow uh, this is such a big thing and yet so often um, the churches I've been a part of um, just didn't uh, ring true as much as I thought perhaps they should in terms of the kind of communities that I was a part of um, often it felt like church was very much a Sunday affair. Uh, there wasn't a lot of life sharing in through the week. Um, while we were in Sydney, uh, we had some massive family issues and uh, sadly uh, it occurred to me that the church were a part of it. It wasn't the first place that I thought to look for support. Um, there are other people that I had through the theological college and other friends where we used to support, but, but my first instinct wasn't actually 
to look to church. And, and when I thought about that, I was just like, there's a, there's a problem with that because surely that should be the first place I look for support. So anyway, that, that's a bit of a testimony to what got me thinking about all this. Um, again, I, I think probably the, help, the helpful thing about what Ed's just done for us is if, if at any point I, I start using terms or phraseology that, that makes all of this sound like a, a sort of a trendy new uh, fad that might be going around in Christian circles, um, please don't think of it that way because I think what we've just seen is that actually what, what we're going to be talking about today um, is as old as, as the, the people of God. Uh, it's, it's there in the, in the Psalms. Uh, what I'm about to show you is it's very much there in the New Testament. We've seen it's there in, uh, in the Westminster Confession. Um, really all, all we're thinking about today is taking uh, stuff that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years and God's people longer um, and, and how we actually really encourage people to do that in our churches today. So if at any point it starts to sound a bit um, out there or whatever, just, just come back and know that really that's what we're on about and if I ever need to clarify terms or whatever, that's, that's fine. I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Let me just take a moment to set some expectations about what we're going to do today. Uh, first of all, I should say straight up, I'm just going to assume that you believe that every Christian's life should be shaped by mission in one way or another. Okay? Exactly how that looks from Christian to Christian will, of course, be very different. But where I'm starting from today is that regardless of who you are, if you're a Christian, mission should be a big deal for you. And it should be one of the shaping factors in your life. Okay, that, that's where I'm building from. Um, and given that I'm saying that, okay, given that we're saying that's the starting point, the next question becomes, does the Bible actually give us any help in this whole area of helping one another to live mission-shaped lives? Does the Bible give us any enduring principles that help us as church leaders disciple our people to live mission-shaped lives. And, and, and even if you're not a church leader, um, does it give you uh, suggestions as to how you might foster that and, and help others do that too? And really, that's what the first big talk is about today. It's the biblical principles for um, pursuing a mission lifestyle, uh, or, or at least some of them anyway. I mean, there's many talks we could give on this topic, but I'm going to zero in on just some of them. Later on today, what I want to do is show you how at Summer Lees, in our church context, we took the principles I'm about to outline and actually tried to structure our church life in such a way that these principles can be effectively put to work. So the second talk will be much more practical, if you like. The first one's much more kind of theological or principle, biblically driven sort of talk. Um, so, yeah, later on we'll look at how we've tried to shape church life so that we can live out these principles. And my hope um, is that as you take a look at how we had a crack at it in, in some of these in Tasmania, um, it might get you guys starting to think creatively about how you can structure church life uh, in McKinnon or, or Frankston or Geelong or, and sorry, I've left out anyone else that's come from anywhere else in, in Melbourne. Um, how you can start putting these principles into practice as well. Okay, I, I don't want to be too prescriptive. I, I believe we've got to contextualise to where we're at and, and what life looks like in suburban Tasmania is going to be look very different from, from Geelong or McKinnon or, or wherever else. But hopefully as I share with you how we've gone about it, that'll just inspire you guys to think a bit about how it might look from where you're at. Okay? 
So let's get into it. We're going to open God's Word. I want us to read from 1 Thessalonians together. Uh, and we're going to start at chapter 1. So 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading from verse 2. One Thessalonians chapter one, starting at verse two. It says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You know brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, because we loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we just thank you so much for your word to us. 
Uh, we've just read about it there uh, in 1 Thessalonians and it is just such a wonderful gift and a wonderful blessing. It is so wonderful to know that you're not a God that just made this world and then just wound up the, the cogs, set back and let it all tick over uh, without helping us, without speaking to us, without relating to us. Uh, you're a God who is involved with us, who wants to have a relationship and who communicates with us so beautifully and so clearly through the Holy Scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as we, as we study the Scriptures now and look particularly at this whole area of how we help one another uh, to grow and disciple one another to pursue a mission-shaped life, Lord, would you help us? We don't want this just to be an intellectual exercise where we walk out learning a few more facts. We want this to be something that really changes the way we live. It should always be that when we study the Scriptures. But we know we need your help for that. In and of ourselves, we haven't got it in us to change our own hearts and our own minds. We are desperately needy of you to work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Uh, You should know, I just love uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, It really has shaped the whole way that we think about church and and how we do ministry at some of these. And it really started out as a a serious case of of what I call church envy. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've had church envy before. It's where you uh, look at someone else's church and you just kind of wish you went there or you worked there. Um, you know, it might be that you're finding your current church situation hard or frustrating. Um, it might seem like it's going nowhere. Uh, you're a bit depressed about that. There might be people around that just are particularly irritating and rubbing you up the wrong way. Um, and, and then you see this, this other church uh, and it's like Jesus has already returned there. You know, it's like they're already in heaven and, and everything's going right and everything's wonderful. Well, that's kind of what we had uh, with the Thessalonian church. It just looks amazing, doesn't it, when you read through chapter 1. Look at verse 3 again with me. 1 verse 3, We continually remember before our God and Father, listen to this, your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Yeah, they're faithful, they're loving, they're persevering, they're enduring. Look at verses 6 and following. You became imitators of us. And of the Lord, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. That's awesome, isn't it? They're the model church. In fact, they're the supermodel church. Everyone all over Greece knows about them. In fact, everyone all over everywhere seems to know about them, that they're just doing so well. And look at verse 18. The Lord's message, the word of the Lord, is ringing out all over the place. The wonderful picture of an amazing looking church, isn't it? It's the supermodel church. If this church was a person, it's Brad Pitt in a movie like Troy or something like that. Yeah, It's really good. And it, and it leaves you asking, doesn't it, how do you get people to be like this? How do you, how do you see Christians mature to be like this? It's the classic thing that people ask, actually, when it just comes to supermodels in general, isn't it? How do you take 
an ordinary human being and just make them so hot, yeah? so good looking. What, what is it that goes on? And so you'll get their personal trainers um, and they'll release articles in men's health magazines and things like that. Um, and you'll have you know, the Brad Pitt in Troy workout. And you'll have Brad Pitt's personal trainer there and he'll take you through the big weight training regime that they, they took Brad through to get him in that kind of shape. And, and it'll make you look like Achilles too if you do it. Or you've got the Hugh Jackman Wolverine diet, you know, for the X-Men movie. Eat like Hugh and, and be totally ripped when you're 45 or whatever. Um, and at least I, I wish we had that for churches. Yeah, I wish we had this sort of a church PT guy saying, this is what I did. Paul, what, what did you do when you were with these guys? Yeah, well, what is it that you did to get them in this kind of shape? Yeah, wouldn't it be awesome if there was Church Health magazine where Paul gives his hot tips uh, for, for discipling people? Well, the thing that I love about 1 Thessalonians is that that's exactly what he kind of does. In chapter 2, he pretty much just goes straight into telling us exactly what he got up to when he was amongst them. Now, of course, all of this has to be framed by the disclaimer that in 1 Thessalonians, it never lets us forget that ultimately any growth in Christian people comes down to God working in them. Okay, we've got to keep that perspective. It's, it's there in chapter 5, verse 23, uh, where, where it says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, very clearly, this is God's work. 1 Thessalonians never loses sight of that. But, our God is a God of means. He is a God who uses people to do his work. And in chapter 2, what we find is a fantastic rundown as to how he used Paul. How he used Paul to go about teaching and leading and discipling his people in Thessalonica. So, how do you go about building a model church? Well, interestingly, in in chapter 2, before you worry about doing anything with other people, you need to think about what's going inside of you. But before you start worrying about anything with anyone else, you first of all have to worry about what you're going to do with you, what's going on in your heart, what's going in your mind. And I think the first key thing that we've got to talk about today is the right motivation. And I think 1 Thessalonians really deals with that in a wonderful way for us. Um, Look at verses 3 to 6 with me again. This is the first thing, the right motivation. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. He says, For the appeal we make, it doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Now, it's important to note that motivation is an incredibly powerful thing. Very powerful. 
thing. It's easy to forget about. It's something that scriptwriters of action movies know very well. I mean, what's going to bring a retired Navy SEAL who swore never to kill again out of retirement in order to save America? Well, all you've got to do is have the bad guy kidnap his daughter or something. And bang, he'll be out there loaded up with heavy artillery blasting away and and doing all of that. um, Motivation is very, very important. And when it comes to ministry, motivation is especially important. And I think it's important for two very important reasons, Okay, It's important for the people you're leading... But it's also very important for you. I'll deal with each of those. First of all, it's important for the people that you're leading. You see, if, if people get a sniff of the wrong kind of motivation, they will not want to follow you. Okay? There is nothing is there, quite so vile as a priest or a pastor or an elder or a Bible study leader um, that, that's just trying to convert people because really all they're after is their money. Or because they want to manipulate them in some way. Or, or use them to bolster their numbers to make them look important. It's horrible. And it's particularly important when it comes to mission and gospel communities. The reason for that is that mission is hard work. It's very hard work. And gospel communities are hard. Both of those things force people out of their comfort zones. Both of those things are costly and time-consuming and no one will want to go on either of them with you if they think that all you're out for is just their money. No, no one will follow you on, on mission and gospel community. They sense that all you're really trying to do is make yourself look really good so that other church leaders or, or the denomination will, will, will think that, that this is a great growing church. Yeah. No one will follow you on any of these things for the sake of your ego or to boost your power. And it really doesn't take long for people to spot a fake. Yeah, but people just can kind of sniff that out. But people know when your motivations aren't pure. It's almost as though people have got a kind of an inbuilt um, motivation detector or, or something. They can, they can just kind of sense it. Uh, there's something inside of us that just detects false motives. And let me tell you, as you try to build others up and strengthen them and play your role... Um, in, in, in pursuing a mission lifestyle with gospel communities, people will pick up on your motives and if they're not right, people will sense that and they simply will not want to go on the journey with you. If your motives are anything other than the pleasure of God, chapter 2, verse 4, then don't even bother. You're stuffed before you've started. And you'll, you'll leave people nowhere good. <coughs> Okay, so, so the right motivation is very important for the people you're leading, but they're also very important for you. And the reason they're important for you is because if your motivations aren't right, you'll do one of two things. You'll either bail out or you'll cop out. You'll either bail out or you'll cop out. Note in verses 4-6, to six, Paul is very clear that he's not doing this to please people. He's not building this church so that people would think he's wonderful. And again, this is 
absolutely foundational when it comes to gospel ministry in general, but especially when it comes to leading people in mission. If you don't get this right, you're in big trouble before you start it because, as I said, mission's hard. Gospel communities are hard work. It means that you're going to be asking people to get out of their comfort zone. It will mean asking people to make sacrifices. It will mean asking people that are busy to give more of themselves. Really, it it forces you to ask people to carry a cross when you're calling them to mission and and, and Christian community. You're asking people to change paradigm shifts and, and ways that they've done stuff for years and years and years and think about new things, think about new expressions. And a lot of the time, initially, people won't thank you for it. Sometimes they'll even attack you for it. If you're really serious about leading your church in mission, I will tell you right now, you will not keep everybody happy. Some people will get really cross and some might even threaten to or actually leave. Now, can you see why there's going to be a big problem there if your motivations aren't bang on? Because if you're just out to please people, if human approval is what's ultimately motivating you, you're going to be in a crisis. Because often leading people to have missional shaped lives won't get you approval. So what happens then? Okay, I desperately want to please people. Oh, people don't seem that pleased. Some people are uncomfortable. Some people are unhappy. Some people aren't getting on board. People are angry at me. What do I do? Well, you do one of two things. If you keep persevering with the wrong motivations, that is, if you want to, you want to please people, well, you'll either burn out and give up because it will just be such a horrible experience for you and you won't be able to hack it anymore, or you'll cop out. You'll go, it's just too hard, people aren't happy, so I'm going to stop asking people and encouraging people to step up. It's upsetting everyone. My motivations aren't being rewarded, so it's easier if I just just go back to the way things always were because then no one got cross. Very important that the pleasing people is not our primary motivation in any of this. Because if it is, ultimately you'll bail out or you'll cop out. Now, before we do anything in terms of thinking about leading people in mission, in terms of encouraging people to live in gospel community, you've got to do that inward work yourself and go, where are my motivations in all this? We've got to be motivated by the pleasure and joy of God before anything else or we will have failed before we've begun. Okay? First, very important thing. You want to build the model church where you've just got to have the right motivation. Let's move on a step to, to, to the stuff inside us to, to what we then do with others. Um, and that's the second point, the right method. And that's really the big thing that Paul shares with us in this passage. 
So we've seen uh, the right motivation, but we also get a very concrete feel for the sort of stuff that he actually did. How did he use his time? What did he do with these Thessalonian Christians? Well, that's what we're going to look at now, the right method. Um, I actually think what you see here in 1 Thessalonians 2 is a two-pronged approach to discipleship. I think there's two prongs to Paul's discipleship message, uh, method sorry, in, um, in 1 Thessalonians 2. Two major ingredients that just flood this passage. The first one is gospel speaking. That's what we'll call it, gospel speaking. If you want to help someone grow in godliness, if you want to lead someone in shaping their life around mission, then gospel speaking is absolutely vital. And what I mean by gospel speaking is actually communicating God's word to people. Um, and as I said, it's all through chapter 2. You see, verse 3, Paul appealed. Yeah? <coughs> speaking language. Verse 4, it says he spoke. Verse 9, he preached. Verse 13, they heard. Yeah? They're, they're, they're all verbal, proclamation, teaching, Bible sorts of words. And very obviously that just plays a foundational and central role in Paul's church building method. And I think that it's absolutely safe to say that we'll get nowhere without gospel speaking. Nowhere at all. Now, here's the good news. I think that by and large, um, in, in our Christian culture, um, we get this pretty well. I think. Okay? Um, and I think we do a pretty decent job of it. We often tend to have pastors who we set aside to put significant effort into preparing sermons, preparing Bible teaching. Um, I'm guessing that, that your, your church uh, prioritises and has structures in place for people to hear God's word. Bible study groups, sermons on Sundays. Um, and that's just fantastic. It means that we're well on the way with one of the major ingredients of Paul's discipleship strategy, that, that whole area of gospel speaking. But it's important to note that it's not the only ingredient in 1 Thessalonians 2. And I think from the churches I've been in, when it comes to this second ingredient, we tend to struggle a bit in modern Western culture. I'm also convinced that we put nowhere near enough time and energy into making sure that we get this side of things really humming. And so this is where I want to spend most of my time this morning. So we've seen that the discipleship strategy involves gospel speaking. Okay? Absolutely foundational, got to have that. But his method also includes something which I'm going to call life sharing. And you see that in 2 verse 8. Read it with me. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, there's a speaking bit, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. So he doesn't just preach to them. He does do that. We've seen that. Very important. He does preach to them, but he doesn't just preach to them. He also lives with them. He doesn't just teach them with the gospel word, but he also teaches them with the gospel 
life. And it's worth noting that that word life there is a very deep word. It's also translated as soul in other parts of the New Testament. And, and, and really, if you dig down to what that means, it means your very self. It's, it's sort of all that you are. And, and that's what Paul shares with the Thessalonians. And it comes out very, very clearly exactly what he means by this in the illustration that he uses there in verse 7. Uh, look, at, look at 2 verse 7 with me. It says, We were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. Very powerful illustration, isn't it, when you think about it? Because motherly love is as personal and intense as it gets. And this is universally acknowledged. Um, every culture seems to recognise this. You learn a lot about cultures by looking at their, sort of their proverbs. Now, if you look at their sort of wisdom literature from various, various cultures, you see the way a culture thinks. And, and what I've noticed is that if you look at the proverbs from, from all sorts of different cultures all over the world, you'll see that this idea of, of motherly love being the most intense, personal, intimate picture of love is just universally recognised and celebrated. And there's an old Chinese proverb that says this, there is only one pretty child in the world and every mother has it. That's nice. <laughs> um, there's an old Jewish proverb that says, God could not be everywhere and therefore he made mothers. Uh, a Spanish one that says, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. People like me need to listen to that, don't we? Um, in, even the great James Joyce, the, the great literary giant, once put it very elegantly when he wrote that whatever else is unsure in this stinking dunghill of a world, a mother's love is not. Yeah. The, 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 the love that a mother has for a child is probably the most powerful picture of human love that you can ever lay your hands on. A mother really shares her life with her children. But what Paul does here in 1 Thessalonians, he takes that image of motherly love and he actually turns the volume up on it a bit. Because the image Paul uses is actually that of a breastfeeding mother. Okay? It's a very intimate and very personal picture there. Uh, almost a bit uncomfortable in its intimacy. You can see why translations like the, the NIV try to, to make it a bit more decent. Um, but you've, you've, you've got to look at it. Um, you, know, you know when you, a, a woman starts breastfeeding in a public place and the polite thing to do is not to stare and gawk at her? Well, this is the one situation where you do need to stare and you do need to take it in and you do need to let the image wash all over you because it's meant to be a powerful, striking, intimate image that he's using here. Just imagine, and I know some of you actually don't have to imagine because I'm sure you've had kids and you've done this yourself, um, but... but um, the, the image of, of the love and the tenderness and the gentleness, the, the desire to nourish, the, the giving of self yeah, that you see with a mother feeding her child. Very powerful picture, isn't it? It's a, it's a very powerful, visible giving of self that we have here in 1 Thessalonians a very powerful picture of sharing a life. Almost frightening in the level of intimacy that it causes to. But, if we're to be imitators of the Lord Jesus, it's not surprising, is it? 
because his love for us is almost frightening in its commitment and passion and intimacy. You also see it in the way that he speaks to them. Look at how many times he says something like, you know. I don't know if you noticed that in the reading as we went through, but he just uses this you know language all the way through. It's there in verse 1. It's there in verse 2. It's there in verse 5. It's there in verse 9. He says that they will remember in verse 10. He says that they witnessed in verse 11. Um, uh, And and then it's uh, you know again. And he can say this because he's shared life with them. And they've seen it. In verse 10, they witnessed how holy and blameless and righteous he was. He didn't tell them, just tell them about it. They, they saw that. They witnessed it. They saw enough of his life in the short time that he was with them so that he can appeal to, to what they saw. Yeah. And then they can go, actually, you know, we really did witness that guy's life. Yeah, we really did see that. Yeah, actually, we do know the way he lived because he was with us day by day. And perhaps at this point it's helpful just to ask the question of ourselves. I mean, can the people that you are trying to build up and minister to say that they really know about your life and the way you live it? Do they really know about your life? Or is all they see a little snapshot of a very tidied up version of your life on a Sunday morning? Yeah? That the, the, the brave face, perhaps, that you've managed to slap on when you walk through the door on Sunday morning. You, know, you, might, you might have been in the, the car having an argument with your spouse, but then you kind of pull up in the car park, you shut the door, and yoop, on comes the nice kind of Christian picture, and in you walk, brother, brother, sit down, and then and off you go. Is, is that actually all people see? Yeah. Paul taught them with words, of course, but he also taught them by sharing his life, living out the gospel truths in front of them, actually showing them what Christianity looks like in all of the different situations life throws up. And I reckon that is a massive reason why they experience such quick, profound growth. Verse 12, he says, He encouraged, comforted, urged them to live lives worthy of God like a father. Now, how do fathers teach their kids? But it's generally not with extended 20-minute monologues. In fact, it's very rarely with a formal sit-down lecture study format. Now, how many of you dads do that? No, no, fathers encourage and comfort and urge their children in the context of life, don't they? As they're walking to the shop, as they, they pick up and cuddle and comfort the child when they hurt themselves, when they have to change the light bulb or something, they show the kids how to do it. Um, when they pick the kids up from school and find out one of them has been teased and they've got to talk through it. But that's the context. Kids learn from their dads in the, in the context of life sharing. And that's what Paul's calling to here. That's what he did. And even, um, even when you kind of... Uh, think this through in terms of the way people learn, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, in that book that I, I spoke about earlier, Total Church, um, great book. I mean, if, if you're interested in this stuff, I'd really recommend getting a hold of it and, and reading it through because it just kind of drills down into a lot of this kind of thing in more detail. But the authors there, Steve Timmis and Tim Chester, they refer to some research actually that um, came out of Britain 
Uh, it was conducted by IBM and the UK Post Office. And this study showed that people who learn by hearing alone retain approximately 10% of what they learnt after three months. It's not very much, is it? However, people who learn by hearing, being shown and experiencing retain about 65% after that same period. Isn't that staggering? It's a whole, what, 55% more? Yeah? And I can't help but wonder whether the reason that, that many churches do not grow at the same extraordinary rate as the Thessalonian church grows is because so many churches reduce gospel teaching to simply formal speaking. Now, again, I want to go back to what I said before. Paul speaks, Paul preaches, they listen, they heard. Yeah, very important that we do do that. But the speaking doesn't happen in a vacuum. The speaking isn't the end of the teaching. Yeah? The, 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 the teaching on the Sunday gets rolled out in the life sharing. And I reckon that this is where many of our modern Western churches have got a real problem. I think in our scene we have rightly got the fact that speaking of the gospel word is central. And that's so good. I think that's so important. And look, there are a lot of churches where they haven't even got that. But I think, I think often in, in our Reformed and Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian circles and um, all, uh, you know, many of the, the churches from the scene that I've been, the Anglican churches that I've been involved with, um, we get that the Bible teaching is important. We structure church life in such a way that Bible teaching happens. We encourage people to make it a priority to sit and listen to Bible teaching and study the Bible in small groups. We've got very good systems in place to make sure that the speaking and listening bit gets done. But I reckon we really struggle when it comes to setting up effective structures and systems that enable people to see the Bible taught in the context of life sharing. And I think that it's very hard to teach people to pursue a mission-shaped life unless they get to share life with someone who shows them what that actually looks like. I can stand up on Sunday, I can give out my top ten tips on how to do evangelism, on how to live as a missionary. I can meet up one-to-one with someone and I can teach them a tool like Two Ways to Live and make them do a cold contact session in the mall with me at the end. I can make the Bible study groups um, do a Bible study on, on mission, living like a missionary, mission like a missionary, living like a missionary. Um, and that's all great. Yeah, that, that stuff's fantastic. We should do that. I want to encourage our churches to do that sort of stuff. Um, one Thessalonians clear, you've got to do the speaking bit, do the proclamation, but to be honest, when I look at the way that Paul went about his ministry, I just don't think that's enough. If you, if you want to teach someone to live as a missionary where they are, then they need to see it done. And they need to see you do it in the context of a real, busy, stressed out, insecure life. Yeah. Why? Because a pristine, super-Christian, pastor figure, um, all they see on Sunday figure, um, living missionally, that's just actually not all that helpful for the average Joe. 
That's way too easy to write off because, well, he's a special one in a million case that was sent off to college and can preach and do all that kind of stuff. I can't be like him. Yeah. I don't have a job like his. He doesn't have a marriage like mine. He hasn't got kids like mine. He doesn't have all that. Now, people are busy, they're tired, they've got kids, they've got wives, they've got husbands, they've got full-time jobs. They need to see how, how you live as a missionary in all of that. So, but to teach them how to live missional lives, that's the context that we need to teach them. They need to see us do it in that context. And they have to be invited to join with us in God's great mission in that context. And let's face it, it's that context where all the non-Christians are, isn't it? They don't have that many of them in here on a Sunday, comparatively speaking. If you think about what percentage of the non-Christians in your suburb are actually in your church building on a Sunday, I'm willing to bet it's, it's minute the non-Christians are in their workplaces and in their streets and at their schools and in their playgroups. They're all out there. And so we need to teach people how to live out there. Teaching people to live a mission-shaped life is messy and it's close up and it's earthy you can't really do it from a distance. You can't stay nice and clean and uninvolved and do it by appointment. You've got to share the gospel word in the context of a shared gospel life that is motivated by a love and desire for the pleasure and glory of God. And my big hope today is that we'll just be inspired to think about how we can go about structuring our church's lives and cultures and programs in such a way that we can encourage meaningful life sharing. Yeah, but I don't think we're going to have all the answers today. I certainly haven't got them all for us in some of these. But if we can just start that creative, imagining um, process, I think that would be a great blessing so that we can get life sharing taking place that we might see many, many, many people pursuing mission-shaped lives so that many, many, many people get to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus, repent and be saved. Yeah? Should we pray about that? We close? Yeah. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the way that you shared life with us and we see that nowhere clearer than in the great Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ your willingness to take human flesh, to live with us in all of our mess, to suffer all that humanity has to dish out at its very worst and yet still walk alongside us and love us and forgive us and bear with us and be patient with us and sacrifice everything for us is an incredible model. And we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he calls us to partner with you in your great mission in this world. Thank you that that's actually not something that we have to be overseas or or anything like that. We can do that wherever we're at because there are lost people all over the place that desperately need to hear the gospel call. And Father, we just thank you um, that here among Thessalonians we get a very clear picture as to how I go about it. Um, We pray that you would help us to get our motivations right 
because we know unless we've got that down first and foremost we'll get nowhere. Thank you that you've given us a heritage that is very big on preaching the gospel word and we don't take that for granted because we know that many churches have lost their way with that so it's great that we have Bible-believing churches, Bible-preaching churches where your word is so central. And Father, we want to bring the compliment to that that we see here in 1 Thessalonians which is Bible-shaped lives being shared with one another that people might grow in maturity, grow in a passion for the lost and grow in their abilities to shape their lives in such a way that they are committed to your great gospel mission in this world. So we pray that you would help us today to do that thinking, uh, to to do the hard work of thinking about where we're at and how we can grow and, and what's required. And we pray that all of this might be the beginning of our churches becoming stronger missionary centres where people are are trained and discipled and and infused with a great passion and desire to get out there and pursue mission-shaped lives. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This audio is provided as a free ministry of the McKinnon Reformed Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, Australia. Visit our website at mckinnonrp.org.au. Thank you for listening.